You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. You'll remember if you were here with us last week that we uh, looked at the events that happened right after the parting of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Red Sea uh, in Exodus 15, and that is the account of the lack of water that the children of Israel experienced. And so they immediately resort to grumbling and complaining about the lack of provision for water. Um, we said that it was um, shortly after, three days after, and so they're kind of on the verge potentially of dehydration. Like, they need water and they need it now, and so they begin to grumble and complain. We talked last week specifically about how when we experience God's provision and God's victory, it doesn't exempt us from more trials, right? Like, they have this great trial where they're trapped and they can't, they can't get away from Egypt, seemingly. They've got Egypt coming. They're pressed in. They're trapped by the Red Sea. God spares them. God saves them. And then, boom, three days later, another big trial hits. They can't find water. And we talked about how, for us as believers in the New Testament, we have to embrace the reality that circumstances are going to keep coming our way that necessitate we trust Him rather than complain. That um, we're not going to be exempt from the bad guys continuing to pop up, just like in TV shows where they're marked by more bad guys coming and always having to be defeated, that we're always going to have trials coming our way that we have to overcome that necessitate us trusting God for provision. Uh, we talked about trusting that bitter circumstances can be surrendered to him who heals by restoring and refreshing his children with sweetness. We talked about how God leads them to bitter water, bitter circumstances, circumstances that just aren't going to work for them. He could have led them to the oasis first, which they eventually get to, right? They go to the oasis at the end of chapter 15. That oasis has been there and has continued to be there even today. They could have gone there first. God leads them to bitter circumstances first. He transforms the water into sweetness to teach them a lesson that God transforms our bitter circumstances into sweet circumstances too. He works good for us in the midst of trials. Uh, We see this pattern continue as we get into chapter 16. And we're actually going to cover the entire chapter today. So we've got a lot to read on the front end. We're going to make some points throughout the chapter. We won't go verse by verse because of the length of it today, but we're going to see this story uh, needs to be packaged all together because it's the provision of bread from heaven. It's the provision of manna that most of us are very familiar with, but we're going to see how it relates to us today. So we'll start reading in verse one. It says, they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord." For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, 
And in the morning, bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall eat. Uh, you shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall, you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Our summary sentence for today. Our pattern of rejoicing always without complaining is to be fundamental, not circumstantial. As the Lord's faithful past provides hope to sustain our present belief that he is working to provide for our needs today and beyond. I put that, that pattern in quotations because that's the pattern that's given to us in scripture, this idea of rejoicing always without complaining. Our pattern of that, our pattern of rejoicing always without complaining is to be a fundamental pattern, not a circumstantial pattern, meaning that's not shaped by our circumstances. It's a fundamental thing that we believe as Christians. It's the Lord's faithful past that provides hope to sustain our present belief that he's working to provide for our needs today and beyond. 
That's how we can rejoice always without complaining, is that we believe. We believe uh, that God is working to provide for our needs today and beyond, and we know that He is because we look to the past and we see His faithfulness to His people. For our kids, the Bible gives us stories of how God has always been good to His people, so we will trust that He is being good to His people today, too. The stories that we're reading about in the Old Testament, they're stories of God's faithfulness to his people. They're given to us so that we'll know them, so that in our day, in our week, this upcoming week, we can trust that God's being faithful to his people today as well. Uh, One commentator said, Christians are meant to live on promises, not explanations. Christians are meant to live on promises, not explanations. Meaning, as Christians, we don't always get explanations for our circumstances. We sang this morning, Tyson did a great job of constructing songs today that fit right with this passage, the idea that he is a promise keeper. That even though the full story hasn't been told, we trust that it ends with our good in mind, right? Christians live on that promise. We don't, we don't live on explanations, right? We don't operate on God giving us reasons for why he does everything that he does in our life. Um, we operate on the fact that God has promised us certain things. He's promised to work good, and we trust in that. We trust that he's working and moving, even when we can't always see it, even when we can't put our finger on it. We know that he is, because he gives us stories like this in the Old Testament where we see him working and moving for the good of his people. This passage is a reminder to us that complaining is a serious sin. It's a sin that should not be a part of a believer's life. Um, Philippians 2.14 tells us to do everything that we do without complaining, right? It's, it's, a, it's a sin that oftentimes we minimize, um, but it's a sin that is, that is highlighted throughout Scripture as being something very serious. Um, and the reason that it's serious is because it's an attack on God's sovereignty, or at least our contentment about God's sovereignty, the way that He is controlling things. Do we believe and trust that it's good? Do we believe and trust that it's right? When we grumble and complain, we are casting doubt in the minds of others because typically our grumbling and complaining is, is audible, it's vocalized, right? So we have already decided that we're discontent with it, and now we impose that upon someone else and try to entice them too to grumble and complain and to feel what we feel about the dissatisfaction of a circumstance. Christians are meant to live on promises, though. They're meant to live on promises that God's always working good, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of wanting times, times where we feel like we don't have what we need. We trust that God is going to provide it for us. The way that I want to break down this passage today is I want us to see both the the profile of someone who is a complainer. What does it look like to be a complainer? Not that we probably need to be taught that today, but sometimes by looking at a profile of a complainer, we experience conviction because we say, that's me. I'm, I'm, I'm prone to do that type of thing. So we're going to look at what a profile of a complainer looks like, and then we're going to look at a profile of a praiser, one who praises God and doesn't complain against him. And so we're going to see what does it look like to praise God? What is the, what is the individual who is rejoicing always without complaining? What does their life look like in hopes that we can uh, aspire to be like that today in the application of God's Word? So let's start by looking at the profile of a complainer. What does a complainer do? Well, number one from our text, they make their current situation worse than it really is. If you want to be a complainer, you make your current situation worse than it really is. 
Note what we learn here from chapter 16 about the timing of these complaints. We're told very specifically, and we believe that, that God's word, every single word is chosen by the Holy Spirit for a specific reason, right? So uh, God could have written anything down that he wanted to about this time period. He writes specifically what he writes down for the upbuilding of our faith. So why does he include the timing of this event, we're told that it's on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. They've been gone from Egypt a month and a half, right? A month and a half, maybe 45 days, they've been gone from slavery. And here they are complaining about food. They're complaining about starvation, basically, right? They're, they're expressing a belief that starvation is on the horizon. You've drug us out here to kill us by hunger, but let's just stop for a minute and evaluate whether this is a, a valid concern, a valid complaint, right? They've been gone 45 days. I don't think anybody for a second believes that they ate their last meal at Passover, right? They had the Passover dinner the night before they leave, right? I don't think anybody believes that was the last time they ate food up to this point, right? They haven't gone 45 days without food. More than likely, they brought food with them from Egypt. We even know that they had some leftovers that they were taking with them, right? So they had things that they took with them. So this is, it wasn't their last meal, right? It was Jesus's last supper before his crucifixion. It was not Israel's last supper before they get to this point, right? So they're expressing starvation. It's been 45 days, even if that was the last time they ate. And we know from scripture that, that God had sustained people even up to 40 days without food. But even today, without supernatural divine intervention, it's been proven that people can fast for 30 days without food, right? Like that's, that's even like in the dietary realm, like people will do 30-day fasts without food. So let's just assume that maybe they're getting close to being past that 30-day cutoff. Well, lots of people have done the 30-day fast. So even worst case, they're getting into the 45-day realm. Starvation is probably not uh, in, the, in the immediate threat for them, right? They probably still have days ahead of them before it would become a real threat. And yet they're saying, hey, if we don't eat now, we're going to die basically. Notice too, though, if you skip ahead to chapter 17, verse 3. So right after we resolve this situation, the next bad guy comes, the next trial comes, the next thing to overcome happens, right? It says, Verse 3, the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Why do I bring that up? Well, here, here's a question for you that maybe you've never pondered. If in chapter 17, verse 3, their big concern is how to hydrate their livestock, how can they truly be complaining about starvation if they've got animals that they can eat, right? Have you ever thought about that? Like, how can they really be complaining that we're about to starve to death, right? Like, you got, you got all this livestock that God blessed you with from Egypt, right? Like, if, if you've ever seen movies about uh, people who have, like, ended up on, like, desert islands or stranded, and, like, they have no food or water, like, they start to resort to, like, really extreme means to live, like the type of things that they'll eat to stay alive. Maybe you've seen some of those uh, alone series 
uh, on the History Channel where, where people go into the wilderness and they go without food and water for long periods of time until they can find it. But in, in the midst of not being able to find it, they'll resort to some pretty crazy means to sustain themselves, right? Like they know they've got to eat. The children of Israel have healthy livestock. This is an example of what complainers do, right? We make our situation sound far worse than it really is. They're not about to starve. It hasn't been 45 days since they last ate, more than likely. Even if it has been, they've got healthy animals that they could resort to eating if they wanted to. Now, why, why haven't they eaten them? Well, well, the scriptures don't tell us, right? So any, any um, answer would be speculation. One thought that I had, and I confirmed even this thought being potential in that other commentators said this, is that maybe their wealth in their minds is wrapped up in their livestock, right? So we're not going to eat our profits because we're shepherds. We, we tend to these livestock. Once we get to Canaan, we're going to need to be able to use these animals to further our livelihood. So we don't want to eat our profits potentially. Um, it's also possible as they're coming out of Egypt and God is trying to get them out of Egypt, but also trying to get Egypt out of them, right? is that they were prone to worship some of these animals in Egypt. Egypt would have held these animals in high regard, and it's very possible that Egyptians didn't eat livestock. If you fast forward, I think it's either Deuteronomy or Leviticus, where we're told again about the Israelites' complaints about food, and they're complaining about what they got to eat in Egypt and what they're not able to eat now. And the one thing that's highlighted is they're eating a fish right? So it's possible that when they're talking about meat, it has nothing to do with livestock because they're not used to eating livestock. Either way, what I want you to see is they are making their situation far worse than it is. It's far worse than it is. They're they're making it sound like it's far worse than it is. They aren't on the brink of starvation, and yet that's the picture they're painting, and that's the picture they've kind of believed themselves. If you're like me, though, sometimes I just want to complain, and you can't rationally convince me to stop doing it right? There's times when, uh, like, I'll be sitting in a planning meeting at Trinity, and somebody will have an idea of something that we should do, and I just generally hate the idea. Like, I just, I just don't want to do it, right? So I'll, I could come up with a PowerPoint presentation about why we shouldn't do it real quick, right? But a lot of times my concerns that I'll bring up, like, they can be answered. And so I've sat in conversations where people are like, yeah, but what about this? Like, we could resolve it this way. Yeah, you're right. But what about this? Yeah, we could resolve it that way too, Adam. Like at the point, there comes a point where I'm just like, I just hate the idea. Like, I just don't want to do it. Like, I just want to complain about it. Like, you can't rationally convince me to stop complaining about this because I just don't like it. That seems to be where Israel is here. They don't like their circumstances. They're making it feel worse than it is, right? By making it sound like they're on the brink of starvation when they're really not. If we're honest with ourselves, this is what we look like when we complain. Oftentimes we complain, we grumble about our circumstances, we make them worse than they really are. Number two, exaggerate your previous situation as better than it really was. Right? It's, it's a month and a half since they left. They can't really have forgotten what Egypt was like, and yet it seems like they have. Right? They grumble and complain, Moses and Aaron, you've brought us out here to kill us. You're going to starve us to death in the wilderness. What does verse 2 say? Would that we had died by the hand, or verse 3, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They exaggerate their previous situation as being better 
than it really was. Let me ask our kids a question. So kids, I need your help right here, okay? Um, most of you've probably seen the movie The Incredibles, right? Can any of our kids tell me why do the Incredibles, those people with like superpowers, why do they have to go in hiding at the beginning of the movie? Does anybody remember? Elliot. Okay, people are, are kind of threatened by their superpowers. What kind of gets the ball rolling? Does anybody remember? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. The whole thing gets rolling because people start getting mad about their condition after being saved, right? And the whole argument becomes, we were better off before you saved us, superheroes. Like, like we don't like our circumstances post-salvation. We'd rather go back to not being saved, right? And you as the viewer are like, man, that's crazy. Like superheroes would be awesome. Like they would save a lot of us from, from evil things that happen. They'd come in and rescue. And yet the movie takes a turn because people start to say, we'd rather not be rescued. Like we'd rather not be saved. Like we, we, we feel like we're in a worse spot since you saved us. And so the Incredibles have to go into hiding. Thank you kids for the help with that. That's where Israel gets at this point, right? Israel basically responds to God like the superheroes in the Incredibles and says, we don't want you to save us. Like, we would have rather died in Egypt of starve, or of, of, we would have rather died whatever way you wanted to pick for us to die than to die of starvation in the wilderness. Because back in Egypt, we were sitting around the campfire and we were eating bread and meat till we were full, and now we don't have those things. Think about what they're saying. They're saying that dying is inevitable, but they would rather die in Egypt as full slaves rather than in the wilderness as free people, but hungry. Probably begs the question, were they really full in Egypt? I mean, like, they weren't living the luxurious lifestyle, right? Like, that's what they were grumbling and complaining about in Egypt. They wanted out. Why? Because they were being oppressed. They were being beaten. They were being worked to death, basically. We don't know exactly how they got their food in Egypt. Did they, did they even have time in their schedule to work the land and to produce crops for themselves? Maybe but they didn't have a whole lot of time to do it, right? Because what were they doing most of the day? Building cities and towers and monuments for Pharaoh. It's possible that Pharaoh actually provided some of their food for them in exchange for the fact that they were gone most of the day working for him. So even if they were eating to their fullness, why were they being fed to the fullness? To work to death for Pharaoh. Like, that's not a good situation. That's not a good life. In fact, they grumbled and complained to get out of it, right? I put in my notes, grumbling oftentimes creates in our minds idealistic and unrealistic alternatives. Like, hey, we don't like what we have right now. We'd rather have what we had previously, or we'd rather have some other alternative that's not realistic. Remember, we started this whole study out by saying that Israel was going to have this question answered, who will you serve? Will you serve Pharaoh or will you serve Yahweh? Right now, it's being answered wrongly. They're saying we would rather serve Pharaoh and be able to eat then serve God in the wilderness and have our hunger. They're saying that living out their lives in pain and misery, a slow death in Egypt would be better than the prospects of living with Yahweh and potentially dying by hunger. They're driven to complaining because they're focused solely on the worst case scenario of their predicament, right? The idea is, is this is going to happen. We are going to die in the wilderness, even though it was just last week, basically, that you thought you were going to die of, of, of hydration issues. You weren't going to have enough water, and you've been, you've, been, you've been saved from that. Now they're going to die of starvation, it seems like. They're convinced that God is out to get them with his hand in spite of all the goodness. 
that he's already faithfully shown them up to this point. How do you become a complainer? You make your current situation worse than it really is. You exaggerate your previous situation as better than it really was. And then lastly, you direct your concerns to individuals who don't really have control. Grumbling is always against the Lord who oversees all. So we grumble about our circumstances. We grumble about our leaders. All of it is really grumbling against the Lord because he oversees everything. It's important to note here that he hears our grumbling too. He hears us when we grumble. Even though we may not be directing our grumbling to him, he hears our grumbling and our complaining. By complaining, what we're really saying is God doesn't know, God doesn't care, and God won't fix it. God doesn't know, God doesn't care, and God won't fix it. And yet what we've seen throughout the book of Exodus is the exact opposite of those things. God does know, God does care, and God will fix it. They accuse Moses and Aaron of evil intentions, right? They're like, you did this. You brought us out here to kill us by hunger. It's always wrong for us to assume the worst and to make baseless accusations against good people. Aaron and Moses have been working for them, not against them. And yet, as soon as the circumstance goes south for them, they want to bring accusations against this leadership. This is how you become a complainer. You make your current situation worse than it really is. You exaggerate your previous situation as better than it really was. And then you direct your concerns to individuals who don't really have control. This is not the way of the Christian. It's not the way of the believer. It's not the way of the one who hopes in God's good work. What does it look like to be the opposite of this then? What does it look like to be a praiser, one who does rejoice always without complaining? How do we have that fundamentally ingrained in us where when hard times hit, when the next trial comes this week, how do we become one who, who praises God in the midst of it versus complaining? Well, it starts by number one, relying on him for your daily needs. That's what God seeks to teach them here in the midst of this need. And we can believe that God withholds the bread from heaven until this need happens to teach them about the source of their provision. Right? It says that the Lord says to Moses, verse 4, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. But he's not just responding to their grumbling with bread. Look, he's got a purpose for all of this, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Let's look at some things that the Lord teaches us about his provision for the people and how it relates to us. Number one, the Lord has shown a pattern of providing supernaturally for his people. And that should give us great comfort, particularly in times where logically we can't figure out how God is going to provide for us. Well, we don't serve a God who always operates with, with logic, right? We serve a God who operates supernaturally, and oftentimes he works and moves supernaturally for his people. He's shown a pattern of that, right? What we find here as this passage plays out is that quail's going to come in the evening and manna's going to come in the morning, and there's little to no effort required by the people to obtain it. Right? There's some natural um, explanation that people try to come up with for where this quail comes from. Right? And so uh, there's been studies shown that, that migratory birds in that area, quail could have potentially come through in mass numbers. Right? And so once again, it's an effort to kind of downplay the supernatural, to downplay the miraculous. Even if there was an awareness of quail coming through that area, the fact that it comes on the Lord's timetable, Right? It's going to come in the evening when I say it's going to happen. 
It's going to come in the quantity needed to provide for this mass amount of people, right? You can't downplay the fact that miraculous things are happening here in the provision for God's people. The manna certainly is miraculous because they have no idea what this is. They have no explanation for it. There is no human logic for this. It's a supernatural provision. They're completely unfamiliar with this substance. They have to use familiar terms to try to even describe it in the text because they've never seen anything like it. And God, God provides for them these daily needs. He does it supernaturally. But the Lord has also shown a pattern of providing abundantly for his people. All right, so we're bringing up these points because we all will find ourselves this week specifically, I'm sure, in situations where we can either grumble or we can praise him. We can either make our situation worse than it really is this week. We can exaggerate what life was like before the trial. We can direct our concerns and complaints to those around us who aren't really in control. Or we can look to God to provide for the daily needs that we find ourselves in this week, knowing that he works supernaturally and he works in abundance for his people. He's going to cause it to rain down on the people. A lot of commentators point out that what you might would expect, particularly those who criticize the Old Testament God, it wouldn't have been too far-fetched to maybe read in verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain fire from heaven on you for your grumbling and complaining. Right? Like there's times where he responds that way. And yet here it's grace and mercy because he could have rained down in his wrath fiery judgment on their complaints. Like, how dare you not trust me? I just provided water for you. I just brought you through water. I just killed all the Egyptians. How dare you not trust me? And yet he says, I'm going to provide in the midst of your grumbling and complaining. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven for you. Promise and assurance that it's going to come not just the next morning, but it's going to happen daily. It's going to happen daily for them. What's our understanding of this passage? That for the next 40 years... Now, they don't know that they're going to wander for 40 years. That's going to be a result of their sin. But for the next 40 years, they're going to wake up every morning, except for Saturdays. Every morning, food is going to be available to them. So even if they never want to eat their livestock, they're going to have food every day. Now, think about what the pattern in Scripture says about working and eating, right? Genesis 3.19 talks about how we're going to have to work hard to eat because of sin that sin has kind of messed things up, and now working to eat becomes hard because we have to work against the, the earth that's subjected to sin. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul tells the, the church, he says, if you're not willing to work, then you shouldn't eat, right? So there's no place for laziness and no place for, for, for an unwillingness to work in the life of a believer. The children of Israel are going to get the, the best case scenario possible. They're not going to really have to work to eat. They're going to have to get up early, which pushes back against the laziness. God's like, I'm not going to let you have like just bad habits develop. You're going to have to get up early because when the sun comes up, the stuff's going to melt away. So you are going to have to get up. You are going to have to gather it. But beyond that, like that's the extreme that you're going to have to do to provide for yourself and your family to eat. He shows a pattern of providing abundantly for his people. As the people gather, there's enough for all. And they express a willingness to share as well, because it talks about some gathered more, some gathered less. But at the end of the day, everybody had enough to sustain them. We'll come back to that point in a minute. Number three, 
the Lord has shown a pattern of providing instructionally for his people too. Okay, so you find yourself in the midst of a trial this week. Right? I want you to remember that there's a pattern in Scripture that you can rely upon, that you can find hope in, that God provides supernaturally for his people. He provides abundantly for his people. But he also provides instructionally for his people. What do we mean by that? When the Lord works and moves this week in your life, he's doing it to teach you something. All right? so, so he doesn't just give us uh, you know, all these things that we want or need. He doesn't just provide abundantly from like the, the negative aspect of like a health and wealth type of gospel. No, he's going to work and move in your life this week to teach you and to grow your faith, which means there may be times this week where you go through periods of wanting and needing and not having it immediately given to you. He works and moves instructionally for his people. The God who's worthy to be trusted for bread is the God worth listening to every day. That's what he wants to teach them. Will they walk in his law or not is what he says. Will will they walk in my law or not? Will they be obedient to me? Will they listen to me? That's the test that's being given here. Because he's given specific instructions about how they will eat. And as we see it play out, some of them listen, some of them don't. Right? Some of them try to hold the food over for the next day. Right? Like, whew, that was rough getting up early this morning. I don't want to have to do that tomorrow. I'm going to collect some extra. I'm going to put it away. And then I'm going to sleep in. And then I'm going to eat when I wake up and not have to get up early. And they do that. And their food stinks. And it's got worms in it. And they went hungry that day probably. Right? So then later on that week, when the Sabbath is almost here, they're like, man, I'm not going to have what happened earlier in the week happen again. I'm going to, I know what God's saying, like bring some in extra so you can eat tomorrow, but man, it stinks so bad. I can't get the smell out of my, my tent. So I'm just going to wake up early tomorrow and get the food. And they wake up early the next day and there's no food because God said there won't be on the Sabbath day because I want you to rest on the Sabbath day. So you got people who are not listening to his law on basic instructions here. Imagine how these people are going to be when he starts giving them more detailed instructions when the law is given. It's a testing time for them. He's got sanctifying purposes in all of this. He wants them to know that he is behind all of it, and he wants them to show their trust in him. So it's about knowing and showing. I want you to know that the Lord is doing all of this, and I want you to show me that you trust me. That's the instructional purposes that are happening here, the sanctifying purposes that are happening for his people. Will the people trust him by listening to him and obeying him? They're still in need of knowing that the Lord is the one delivering them. So how do we become a a person of praise? How How do we push back against the complaining tendencies? Well, we look to him for our daily needs. We rely upon him for our daily needs. We remember that he provides supernaturally, abundantly, and he's always trying to teach us something in the ways that he provides for us. Number two, we rest in him for our ongoing needs. Rest in him for your ongoing needs. There's an element of rest that comes up here in this passage as they're gathering food throughout the week. He's responding to their grumbling, but he's He's not just responding to their grumbling, right? Like it's not that they pitched a fit and cried so hard that now he's going to do this. He says, I've heard your grumbling and now I'm going to enact my plan where I test you, where I teach you. So it's not just God caving, right? Like sometimes I tell my kids um, when they're crying or you know, whimpering or whining, I'll just stop them and I'm gonna say, it doesn't matter how long this goes on for. Like I am resolved at this point that I am not changing my mind because I don't want you to ever think that if you do this, that I'll cave to you. 
So I'll just tell them, like, you can keep doing this, and we can keep going round and round, but I am not changing my decision on this for the very fact that you continue to grumble and complain and whine and cry, right? God's not caving to his people, right? Like, so the pattern here isn't, man, if we grumble and complain to God, like, he'll eventually give us what we need. No, he's hearing their grumbling, right? What he would like to hear is their praise and their worship and their prayerful trust. That's not what he's hearing. So he's going to teach them a lesson here to listen to his law. That's the instruction that comes. In the midst of that, though, he communicates a need for rest. He communicates a need for rest. So they eat this quail. They eat the manna, verses 9 through 12. Verse 13, the quail shows up. They get, the, they get that. They get the, the, man, uh, the manna. But then on the sixth day, verse 22, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded. It did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. There's a couple of points of rest that we see in this passage, right? One, that they can work hard all day. They can gather food in the morning. They can do all of the things they need to do each day, and they can trust that God will provide for them the next day as well, right? There's almost this pattern of like, hey, you don't have to overwork yourself every day to make sure that you're provided for the next day, right? You don't have to, you don't have to overwork yourself. You don't have to stay up late wondering and hoping that provision will be made for tomorrow, He's like, go to sleep. Go to sleep and rest and know that you're going to wake up tomorrow and the same God who provided for you today is going to provide for you tomorrow. And he's going to provide for you the next day and the next day. And for the next 40 years, he's going to keep providing for you. Go to sleep and rest. And then he also communicates this pattern of, there needs to be a day in your week where you just really rest in him. Where you really carve out time to break from what you do all other days of the week and you do things different on this day. Now, we've taught before, and so I'm not going to go too deep into it right now. We've taught before, like, where does the Sabbath fit in the life of a New Testament believer, right? There's not a whole lot of discussion or commands about the Sabbath in the New Testament like there is in the Old Testament. So we talked about some of this when we went through covenant theology. We certainly talked about this when we went through the book of Genesis, because the, the concept of Sabbath goes all the way back to the creation week, right? When God creates and he rests on the seventh day, he gives us a pattern of rest ourselves. So many times the argument is we don't have to keep the Sabbath day in the New Testament, right? Like Christ is our Sabbath. We don't have to do it. And we lose sight of the fact that, hey, a day off every week is a good thing. Like, like it's a gift from God. It's, a, it's an opportunity to rest. It's op- also an opportunity for us to stop and say, I'm not the sole provider for myself. The Lord is. And I show that by taking a day where I do it differently. And, and, you know, we worship on that day for us. It's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath would be the, the end of the week, Saturday. We worship on the first day of the week because of the resurrection of Jesus. But having that day, our Sundays are different than the other days of the week, right? We carve out this time. We commit time to gathering and to worshiping and to giving him full attention with our, with our minds and our hearts, That's what he sets aside here for the people. He's going to give them further instruction at Sinai when he gives them the Ten Commandments. But here for now, he says, you're not going to have to gather food on the Sabbath day. You're going to do it 
just as much the day before. You're going to do twice as much. And then you're going to have provision for the next day. The basic instructions. So number one, God sets a pattern of work for the people to gather daily while trusting him for tomorrow. The basic instructions of how to gather and how not to are given. Get up early to get it before the sun comes and melts it. The question is, will they gather the proper amount each day and not hoard for tomorrow? If they keep it, it spoils. If they share it, everyone has enough. They're not called to overwork as what is supplied is sufficient for the day. They're called to be willing to share to ensure everyone has enough. Paul actually uses this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 for the New Testament believer to have a pattern of giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 15. He's talking about the church and its willingness to give. He says in verse 13, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul uses this passage for New Testament teaching and basically says, okay, as the church comes together, we're a family. And as the Lord blesses some of us with abundance and there's needs that happen within the family, we ought to give out of our abundance to those who are in need. Not to, to enable them to, to always be in need, but to see needs when they come up and to give to those needs, knowing that as that person comes out of that need and they're brought into a state of abundance at some point, they too will be able to turn around and give out of their abundance to others in need as well. So this is a good pattern for us as New Testament believers to see. That as we gather on a daily basis and the Lord provides and gives us an abundance, we ought to be willing to look around to those who have a need, who maybe couldn't gather as much and need us to give to help supply for them. God sets this pattern for us. Number two, God sets a pattern of rest for the people to work hard while recognizing their limitations. Will they gather extra on Fridays in anticipation of the Sabbath rest? Note how the provision amount changes too. So he's covering the land with the manna. They go out and they collect it. Everybody has enough. But there's twice as much available on Fridays. So it's not that you have to work extra hard on Fridays to find enough for today and tomorrow. There's plenty more provided on those days. So you're still kind of putting forth the same effort. You're just getting twice as much back so that you have enough for the next day. The question is, will they prioritize the time devoted to the Lord as a time of rest from their normal weekly responsibilities? This rest from work is meant to be a difference from the unbelieving world. It's different than what they were doing in Egypt, right? They worked every day for Pharaoh. They don't have to work every day for God here. It sets us apart from creation too. Think about how that makes us different from the animals, right? Like the animals have to, to do every day the same, right? Um, I can hunt on a Sunday or a Saturday, because deer have to get up and find their food every day, right? They can't rest and have a Sabbath. Like, they have to do their days all the same. We don't as God's creation. He gives us a day of rest. He gives us a Sabbath. It's a gift to us. We rest in Him. The way that we rest is a demonstration of our trust in Him. Can we sleep at night? Can we stop working? Can we trust in His provision after we've done our part? Lastly, number three, remember Him for your future needs. The passage closes after all the provision that we see God give in the midst of all the grumbling and complaining. 
there's instructions given about preserving this story with a symbol that they'll remember for future generations, right? Um, The Lord tells Moses and Aaron to preserve manna, to keep a portion of it as a visual reminder to people when the manna is no longer provided, that there's a picture of it, that you'll remember that, hey, God provided in the wilderness when we needed food. We're not in the wilderness anymore, but we are in need and we can look to that manna and say, hey, just like he provided for his people in the wilderness, he's going to provide for us today. The past faithfulness of God needs to be understood and known by God's people today. They kept an omer of manna. It eventually ends up in the Ark of the Covenant, Hebrews 9, 4 tells us, for future generations to see and know what happened here. Now, as we continue to work through Exodus and we get into other books in the Old Testament here about this account of the wilderness wanderings, we're not told and reminded constantly that they got manna every day. But we're told here they get it for 40 years. And if you read Joshua 5.12, as they get ready to go into the wilderness, it talks about them eating their last manna meal. And it says they eat the last one because there's plenty of food in the land now that they're there. God had provided every day for them. Every day he gave them what they needed. It's a pattern for us to trust in. Every day he gives us what we need to. Number two, the past faithfulness of God provides hope to keep us believing when our needs for provision feel uncertain. His past faithfulness gives us hope to keep believing when our needs for provision feel uncertain. Don't know what you went through last week. Don't know what you'll go through this week necessarily. There may be times where you feel like "Eh, it's uncertain whether God's going to come through here. It's uncertain whether God's going to provide here. They felt that way too right here. Problem was they made their situation feel worse than it was. They, they glorified their previous situations as though they were better than they really were. They grumbled and complained to people around them who were completely out of control of the situation. What God wanted them to do was to trust him for their daily needs, to rest in him, and to remember, to remember that this is who he is, that he's been providing for them, and he will continue to do so. Two points of application. Number one, Every aspect of life, including my eating, is to be governed by God's word with me seeking obedience to it. God's not just concerned about giving them food to eat. He's concerned about them being obedient to his law, which means as he gives the food, he gives them instructions to obey. Deuteronomy chapter 8, 3 tells us the lesson here. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We're going to see more as we get into Exodus how Jesus is the fulfillment of what Israel went through. Because Jesus did go 40 days without food. And Jesus was hungry, we're told, because he was human. And we're told that Satan came and tempted him and said, hey, you should just make your own food here, like make your own bread, like turn the rocks into to food for yourself. And Jesus says, look, I don't, I don't, man doesn't live by bread alone. I live by the word of God, right? Like that's the, that's the fulfillment of this. Jesus doing what Israel didn't do. He's trusting in the Lord for provision. He's not grumbling and complaining, right? Um, Every aspect of our life, including our eating, is to be governed by God's word with us seeking to be obedient to it. Number two, every true need I have is met not in earthly provisions, but in the provision of Jesus who meets my greatest needs by saving me. Man, let us never be like those people in the Incredibles who get to a point where we say, 
we wish we could go back to life before Jesus because life was better without Jesus, right? Your life will never be better without Jesus, right? He is the fulfillment of all of our needs. I hope we were going to have time to, to read through this today. We're not, so your, your real point of action, what do you do when you leave today? Go read John chapter 6. Because John chapter 6 is Jesus providing food in the wilderness for the people, the 5,000 getting food from him miraculously. And then they come questioning the bread and they want more of it. And Jesus says, look, I am the bread of life. I am your manna, right? Like manna prefigures Jesus. He is the bread of heaven. He is the bread of life. He is the one that we're to eat of. It's the passage that talks about us eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood. We feast on Jesus because he meets every need, which means you may have earthly needs that that feel like big needs that aren't met this week. You can trust that Jesus is your greatest fulfillment of your need. You have Jesus this week. You can keep turning to him and trusting in him for all of the provision that you lack. Encourage you to read John chapter 6. Read the truths there. We may come back to it on Application Sunday next week. Um, but I encourage you to read John chapter 6 as an application to further deepen your understanding of this passage, to rejoice always without complaining, to trust Jesus for your greatest needs. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you and you praise you today. And Lord, we want to be praising you today, regardless of whatever trial we're facing right now. So easy to grumble, so easy to complain, so easy to exaggerate how bad our situation is right now. Lord, help us not to lose sight of the fact that you are in control, that you've always been faithful to your people, and you're going to be faithful today. You're going to be faithful tomorrow. You're going to be faithful next week. You're going to be faithful next year. You're going to be faithful until Jesus comes back. You're going to be faithful after Jesus comes back. You're never going to stop being faithful to your people. So Lord, while we may not get explanations this week of why we're going through what we're going through, help us to remember that you're always teaching us and growing us and strengthening us. And so we can live by the promises that you've given us, even if you don't give us explanations. Protect us from from grumbling and complaining this week. Draw us to praise you and worship you and trust you in the midst of trials this week. Lord, help us to see that eating is important, but being obedient to your word is far more important. Lord, help us to operate this week in submission to your authority. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.